Second Peter two is a difficult. It's a difficult text. It's a challenging. It's thick. It's weighty. It's heavy. It's complex. All of those kinds of things. And to be honest, I really struggled with how to approach it because it's one of those texts where you can't decide whether it's better to do it at once or to divide it into like four weeks. So what we're going to do, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to kind of more talk through this than I am going to preach maybe what you think of as a traditional sermon, though I think it will still be like a traditional sermon. And I'm hoping we get through the whole chapter. But the truth is that if we don't, then we're just going to stop. (laughs) And then we'll just pick up next week where we where we didn't finish. So 2 Peter 2 is all about false teachers. And so what happened, and if you remember 2 Peter chapter 1, is that Peter, Peter kind of comes into this letter saying that he knows he is going to depart soon. He knows he's going to die soon. And so then what he does is he says, I want to make sure that you have a written account of the things that are trustworthy, namely the gospel and the teachings that emanate from the gospel concerning godliness. And he wants them to have a written account of these things because the written scriptures are trustworthy and true, as Breton unpacked for us last week. And so he wants to make sure they have that so that they can also have what is trustworthy and true. And he, he began in Second Peter chapter 1 talking about how because of the gospel, we have this firm foundation, and then with the gospel, we supplement the gospel with this pursuit of maturing, you know, this pursuit of godliness, this pursuit of knowledge, of growing in brotherly affection and love. And so he ends that, that last section that Breton did talking about how the miracles that God has done, especially he, he focuses on the transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured to be like his glorious self before the eyes of Peter and James and John, Peter says that that transfiguration simply confirms that everything the Old Testament said about Jesus is true. And therefore, because of the certainty of the scriptures, we should pay extra close attention to them. And so in other words, he doesn't say, so because of that, you should make sure you pray and ask for really awesome experiences like we had. He says, instead of that, you should pay close attention to the Scriptures because the prophets of old did not write of their own accord, verse 21, but instead they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which isn't something you conjure like paganism. You know, you say, like, today I will be carried by the Spirit, and then you summon it, and then it, it, it brings you along. That's not the way that the Holy Spirit works. And so with that backdrop, we're stepping into, fall, into chapter 2 because it immediately begins with this contrast of the true prophets who wrote the scriptures and then these false prophets. So I'm going to read one paragraph, talk about a paragraph, read a paragraph, talk about it, that sort of thing. So chapter 2. Um, if you either have your scripture journal, you know, some of you have your scripture journal, or if you don't have a scripture journal, there are hard copies of the chapter, but it will be a lot easier to follow me if you're looking at the passage, okay? But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, chapter, so verse 1. So the false prophets emo- arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So he's beginning with that word, but, because he wants you to realize that there were false prophets the same way that there's false teachers today. There were false prophets. There's true prophets and false prophets. And so one of the questions that's immediately going to be rooted in your heart here is how do I distinguish between a false prophet and a true prophet, between a false teacher and a true teacher. And hopefully we can answer some of that um, as we go through this chapter. So you have to begin realizing that verse 1 looks back to chapter 1. But, okay? But then he continues, he says, false prophets arose among the people just as. And that's an important little phrase there. You know, that's worth circling in your Bible because he's drawing a comparison. He says, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now, I find that fascinating. The reason I find that fascinating is because Peter is showing that there's a transference in the authority from prophecy to teaching. In other words, just as there were false prophets while the scriptures were in their early stages, now there's false teachers who unpack the scriptures and they tell you false things. And so that's a very interesting thing to observe, that false teachers are just as detrimental and destructive as the false prophets of old. He says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, by the way, um, that word destructive, it's used so many times in this passage or synonyms thereof. Every time I saw destructive or a synonym, I circled it in red. And when you see that on your paper, it's amazing to realize these themes. Destructive heresies. Now, what makes them secret? That's one of the questions that I asked as I was reading this with David. We sat down at the table and we read through this this week, just kind of ping-ponging back and forth. What makes it secret? What makes it secret is that false teachers take something that is subtly close to the truth or a debatable topic, and then they twist it in order to accomplish their desired end. Okay? So, for example, there's three things here that we know are going on. One is this. We know from the end of chapter 3, which I'll jump to right now and read to you real quick, in verse 19, it says, Count the patience of the Lord as, or 15, sorry, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in, these, in, his, in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, in Paul's letters, that is, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So notice that same word, destruction. And so one of the secret heresies that the false teachers were bringing in is they were pointing to Paul's teachings about freedom in Christ, and then they were pulling them in and they were using them for justifying behavior. Now, you have to remember, if when you read Paul's writings, one of the things that Paul frequently dealt with was this controversy between the Jews and the non-Jews who became followers of Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles. 
It was probably the biggest issue in the early church. And so the Jews, when the Gentiles all of a sudden became followers of Jesus and God confirmed that word that he spoke by having the Holy Spirit fall upon them in front of their eyes, it became a real big problem because these Gentiles didn't follow the Mosaic law. They weren't um, circumcised. They didn't eat. They ate bacon, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so there was a group called the Judaizers, and the Judaizers would go into churches of Gentiles And they would say, unless you follow the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Jesus is good, but you also need to follow the law of Moses. And so then you had all of these Gentiles who were getting circumcised, and they were trying to follow the law. And Paul goes to great lengths to explain that why would we make them follow the law when we couldn't even follow the law? Jesus has fulfilled the law and freed us from the work of the law. The law only led to death. So one of the things that these false teachers were doing is they were saying, hey, look, Paul says there's no law. And because there's no law, we can do whatever we want. And this heresy was called antinomianism. It means there's no law, anti-law, antinomianism. And so what they said is, well, since we can do whatever we want, what do you guys think they would do? Whatever they want. (laughs) It doesn't take too much imagination to fill in those blanks. And so they would use Paul's teachings of freedom in Christ as justification. Hey, Jesus forgives me. I can just apologize tomorrow. I'm going to do whatever I want. That was secret heresy number one. Secret heresy number two is we see in the beginning of chapter three, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. And what it says there is this. He says, know that in the last days there will be scoffers. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, there will be a group of people, Peter says, who deny that Jesus is coming back to judge. And so this was another heresy, and it was rooted in complex things, right? Debatable topics. We know that even today you have different churches, denominations, groups, you know, Christians who will debate back and forth, hopefully with goodwill, about the different views in how everything is going to end. You know, the timeline for its ending, whether we can know it, whether we can just guess at it, all of these kinds of things. And as we see in other areas of Paul's writings as well, some of these issues of end time lack of clarity led to heresy, led to difficulties. And so the reason these are, called, these are secret heresies is because there are things that are talked about. Like Paul talks about freedom in Christ, but Paul didn't mean use your freedom in Christ to do whatever you want. You know, Paul talked at length about the end, as did other authors within the the Scriptures. But just because they talked about it doesn't mean that you then get to twist it to your own desired purposes so that you can justify your behavior. And so that's what these teachers were doing. And then the third thing we see here is it says, even denying the master who bought them. And quite honestly, that's, that's what we have. I don't know what they were saying, what they were doing how they were denying the master, whether they were denying him verbally, whether they were denying him with his actions. But it looks to me that they were denying by bringing, they were denying in the way that they were leading people into false um, teaching. And so he says, 
they secretly bring in these heresies. And so if I was going to give you one quick pointer on heretical teaching, it's this. It's always subtle. It's always subtle. It's not like, this is your God, Zorgon, and he wants you to worship him. It's never like that. It's always very subtle. God told me that you should do this. It's subtle. It goes and looks at the scriptures and then twists the scriptures to its desired results. But look what Peter says. They will bring upon themselves swift destruction. And so what we see is that when you teach destructive heresies, you will get swift destruction. Now, we see in chapter 3 that swift is a relative term for God because God's economy is different from ours. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the false teachers, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is another huge theme in this chapter. Many will follow their sensuality. Sensuality is a kind of a blanket term. Um, It refers to unbridled lust. It refers to licentiousness, which means you have a license to do whatever you want. It refers to excess, shamelessness, sexually unrestrained. Um, As David and I were talking, we said it's kind of like Vegas or spring break, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. The spring break lifestyle, that's what sensuality, it's all about satisfying the cravings of the flesh. And so we can say, well, why would people follow false teachers? Well, because sensuality sells. Sensuality sells. That's just the bottom line. When you give people permission to sin, they like it. And we can see that in our own culture right now. And the more permission you give to people to do whatever they want, anywhere they want, any way they want, with any part of their body, the more people are going to go deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole because sensuality sells. And what these false teachers were doing is they were giving false justification to people to say, by all means, embrace all the primal urges of your body and do whatever you want because you're forgiven in Jesus and all of this is a gift from him. And he's not coming back anyway. And so you had this extreme, twisted view that was rooted in some truth but then we see that it destroys. He says the result of this is that the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth, referring to the gospel, referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The way of truth will be shamed. Now, over the last few years, we've seen countless numbers. Well, it feels like countless. I guess you could count them, but a lot of believers who were in the spotlight who have fallen into sin and then they, you know, they left ministry or whatever it might be. And, you know, celebrity pastors and celebrity authors and musicians, whatever it might be, we also know one another. And the truth is this, when we have a friend and we find out that friend has fallen into deep sin, as a believer, it breaks our heart. 
And I think it breaks our heart for two reasons. One, it breaks our heart because they're our friend and we don't that want them to be enslaved to sin. But I think there's a second reason it breaks our heart. Because we too know how absolutely seductive and destructive sin is. And so there's a sense when we see someone fall from grace, uh, a pastor who falls into sin or whatever it might be, there's a sense where we have this tension in our heart because we know what happened was wrong, but we also know that but by the grace of God, I'd be in the same position. And I hope that I can say that to you quite honestly because the reality is this, um, pride comes before the fall. And anything you read about, anything you hear about, I want you to know that but by the grace of God, you're just as capable of doing it as the next person. And so there's a sense in which those destructive paths of sin, they really burden our heart. But at the same time, how does the world view those things? As cannon fodder. The world sees someone fall from a place of prestige and ministry, or they hear about a pastor who gave into this, or about a whatever it might be, and the world loves it. The world loves it because they will twist it to shame the gospel, not understanding that the reality of our sin just underscores our need for the gospel all the more. The way of truth is shamed as the world points and laughs. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they're going to get what's coming to them. The question, though, is this. Why have they chosen this path? Why have they chosen this path? Because all of the language that we see, the fact that you're twisting you're twisting truth, you're, you're twisting debatable topics, you're twisting conversations, that all implies intention, right? It's not accidental. It's intention. It's ignorance, but it's intention. They've chosen this path, Peter says, because of their greed, their covetousness. We joked a couple weeks ago that if you were going to make a list of the ten things that the world needed to not do, you know, the Ten Commandments, or I should say the God's people, covetousness probably wouldn't make your list. But if you actually think about it, covetousness is the root of so many of your struggles in life. You covet a body that you don't have, so you go to the gym or you starve yourself. You covet a life you don't have, so you decide you're going to work extra jobs and not spend time with your family. We covet this. We covet that. We cover more peace. We cover, covet escape. We are constantly desiring and coveting other things, which leads us down all kinds of paths of sin. And we step back and we say, well, I'm a workaholic. Well, that's not your problem. Your problem is you're covetous. It goes back to the fact that we have a bottomless pit that we're constantly just pouring things down and hoping it fills up. And that's the impetus for these false teachers. Their greed, their covetousness, their desires and urges, which is why 2 Peter chapter 1 says this. He says, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 4, chapter 1. This tells us that it began with an urge. It began with a desire. 
In order to justify that desire, the words of truth needed to be twisted. And once the words of truth were twisted to justify the pathway of sin, then the heresy began. And it was just one step after another. I would say this to us. I'd say to us, to any of us, if we are justifying the satisfaction of the flesh, we are walking on a dangerous path, dangerous path, for it is the same path that was the early stages for these false teachers. So if you were going to summarize the first paragraph, it would be this. False teachers gave in to their sinful urges and then justified these urges with false doctrine, which gave them a license to sin, which led to more false doctrine, to more license to sin, to more false doctrine, and so the rabbit hole goes. Second paragraph. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now, he's referring back to the idea that their destruction is not asleep. In other words, they're going to get destroyed. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, that's example number one. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, now we have a contrast, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, that's example number two. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example to ha of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that, man, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then... So realize that 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 were all four statements. And now in verse 9, it switches to then. For then. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So in this paragraph, we have three pictures of judgment, and we have two pictures of preservation. Maybe there's a third picture of preservation, but it's implied, not described. So the three pictures of judgment, and we won't have time to explain at length these pictures of judgment. Instead, we're just going to mention them. The first picture of judgment is this, rebellious angels. And that's the angelic rebellion led by Satan um, that essentially corrupted the world as, as Satan goes and he, he twists the truth with Eve. The second is the wicked people in Noah's day. It says in, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 5 and 6 and 7, it says that every intention of their heart was evil. Every intention of their heart was evil. They craved evil. They craved evil. It's the wicked people in Noah's day. And then we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, this story of rape, among other things. We have these three pictures of judgment, and then you have two contrasts of Noah and his family. It says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. In other words, Noah was speaking against the evil of the day. The question for us is, do you herald the righteousness of God within the midst of a 
perverse and crooked generation? Or are we silent? And then we have Lot and his family, and it says that Lot was distressed by the sensual acts of the wicked. And so the question for us is, does the sin around us, whether it's in our own hearts, because all of us are, are wicked without the grace of God, right? Let's not have false pretense. This is not a sermon that you preach and you say, well, thank goodness I'm not like these idiots. No, this is a sermon you hate to preach because you see your own sin in the mirror. They're distressed. Are you distressed by your sin? Are you distressed by the sin in your family, the sin in your community, the sin in the nation, sin in the world? And being distressed doesn't mean that you just kind of point at everybody else. But it means you see the root of these things. I, now, maybe my covetousness has not manifested itself the same way that his covetous has manifested itself. But the root issue of covetous is still deep within my heart. And it needs the gardener to pluck it out. Are you guys following me? Because this is not the kind of sermon where we say, well, let's all get riled up and mad. That's not the solution here. The solution is that we're all desperate for forgiveness and grace. But it says that the false teachers are led by and lead with sensuality. But the righteous people were distressed by it. Distressed by it. You know, when you look up that word sensuality in the Greek, um, like a Greek dictionary, for example, the first word that it uses, the first descriptor that it uses for sensuality is unbridled lust, unbridled lust. And David and I were talking about that because it's such a powerful description, unbridled lust. You know, and David pointed out that horses are powerful animals. I mean, you put a bridle on a horse and you train it, and it's amazing the weight that a stallion can pull. But if you take that bridle off and it's just a wild stallion, it's almost like it becomes purposeless. It can't accomplish the task that God created it for, right? Because God created horses, and he said to men, have dominion over them, serve and protect them, allow them to be used for your purposes. And when you take that bridle off and you take that training away and it just becomes a wild stallion in heat, it's like it loses all of its purpose. Intimacy is a wonderful and God-given gift, and it has its purpose, and it has its design, and it has its delight, but it also is meant to be bridled. It's meant to be bridled to the, mar to the marriage bed. And when sensuality is unbridled, or when it is selfish, even within the context of marriage, it loses its beauty and it loses its design. That's unbridled lust. The false teachers, Peter says, use this sensuality as that's the thing that drives the cart. Give in to sensuality. Embrace sensuality. Whatever your body wants to experience, by all means, walk with it. He also says that they despise authority. 
Well, authority issues go back to the root of it all, don't they? I mean, Genesis chapter 3 is all about authority, about who's in charge. The serpent says to Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat that? And she starts twisting the truth. And the question he asks even is confusing. He says, you know, is, did God really, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's like a double negative. Did God, God really not say that you shouldn't not eat that? And Eve's like, uh, I think, yes, no. And so Satan twists that truth. But Eve and Adam embrace this idea of questioning the authority of God. They want to determine what is good and evil for themselves. We see this throughout the scriptures. Whose truth is it anyway? What is truth? Pontius Pilate asks Jesus as he's standing before him on the brink of execution. See, false teachers despise authority because if you can reject authority, if you can reject the authority of the Bible, then I can do whatever I want. But if the Bible is true, that's a problem for her heretics. A couple years ago, I was talking with a pastoral friend of mine about some of the complex conversations that were being had within the denomination about this, that, and the other thing. And he said, well, we have to talk about these things. And I said, no, you don't. I said, you need to talk about whether or not you think the Bible is the authoritative word of God or not. Because the Bible's super clear on these things, and you're debating peripherals instead of debating the root cause, which is whether or not this word is true. But once we can throw out the authority of God's word, then we might as well twist everything else to be a cultural nuance or a fleeting command, and then we can do whatever we want, which is basically what we've been trying to do since Genesis 3 anyway, isn't it? So if we were going to summarize paragraph 2, however, it's really verse 9 that's the crux of paragraph 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Jesus tells a parable in the book of Matthew it's called often the wheat in the weeds or the wheat in the tares. And this is what he says in that parable of the wheat in the tares. He says that a man had a field and it was planted with good seed and it's growing. But then one of his enemies came and his enemy planted weeds within the field. And the workers go and they go to the owner and they say, hey, um, you have weeds all over your field. Like, did you buy your, your seed at the dollar store? And he says, no, I had good seed. And he says, ah, this must have been an enemy who did this. And they said, well, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to pull the weeds out and we'll just go through the whole field? We'll get rid of the weeds. And he says, no. He says, if you do that, you're going to damage the wheat as well. And he says, what you need to do is we're just going to wait until the harvest. And then we're going to harvest it and we're going to separate it and we'll burn the weeds. And we'll preserve the wheat. And this is exactly what Peter has in mind, along with the story of Noah and the story of Lot and other stories, that he knows that Jesus said, you're going to have weeds within the church. 
the wheat is the true believer and the weed is the false believer. And you're going to have them within the church. Paul warned them as well. He said, look, you're going to have, um, you're going to have wolves. And they're not just going to come from the outside. They're going to come from the inside. And you have to be on guard because they're going to be there. They're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to look like a sheep, but they're going to be a wolf. It's the nature of who they are. If you're a weed, you're a weed. You're not a weed that becomes wheat. You're a weed. And if you're wheat, you're wheat. And so he says, at the end, then we'll sort it out. But he says, God is able to preserve the righteous. In other words, God is able to make sure that the wheat actually grows and gets there all the way to harvest And simultaneously, he's able to make sure the weed is preserved so the weed can one day get judgment that it actually was destined for. So we're going to stop there, and I'm going to pull this together, and we'll do the second half next week. But this is what I want you guys to realize. The summary of paragraph one is that this heresy is rooted in the subtle manipulation of truth. It's not this massive manipulation of truth. It's this subtle manipulation of truth, okay? It comes under the guise of intelligence. It comes under the guise of teaching. It comes under the guise and the illusion of education. But it's all twisted to justify sin. This is why Jesus said, you will know them, you will know the false teacher by his fruit, because apple trees don't produce figs. And so if a teaching that you're hearing is leading you into sin, it's a heresy. And it's all kinds of sin. If a teaching that you're hearing on the internet in today's day and age is leading you to lower your love and to grow in anger, Maybe it's a heretic. I'm going to say that again. If a Christian teacher that you listen to is stirring up anger and hatred in your heart instead of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, It's pushing rapidly towards heresy. And so you flee. Because right now in our nation, there's all kinds of teachers who are using their teaching to sow seeds of discord and sow seeds of sin. If a teaching justifies sexual deviation, it's heresy. If any teaching you're hearing is leading you not towards growing in holiness, but growing towards something else. It's heresy. And the second paragraph is about this reality. And this is both an encouragement and a warning. The second paragraph is about the fact that God knows how to tolerate the wicked today. Because our question is, well, why doesn't God just get rid of it? God knows how to tolerate it today while simultaneously preserving the righteous for the end. But for you and me, this is what we need to remember. 
do not consider God's patience in your sinful struggles today as approval. Do not consider God's patience in your sinful struggles today as approval. Because it might be God patiently waiting. God is able to both preserve the righteous and the wicked. And so we look at the Word of God, we know what is true, and we walk forward in obedience rather than trying to justify ourselves in our own sinful behavior. And that all comes back to chapter 1 and knowing the Word of God and supplementing your faith with that beautiful chain of characteristics in chapter 1. And so let's keep remembering that Jesus is the greater portion. Let me pray for us. Father God, I know this is a heavy text. I know it's a heavy sermon. I know it's a heavy concept. I just pray, Lord, that uh, anything that's from my flesh would have disappeared and anything from your spirit would ring true. Lord, we don't want to use cleverness of speech to convince ourselves or others of falsehood. We want to walk forward in obedience. And so, Lord, I pray because I know that everyone in this room, myself included, has those sinful struggles that we wish would just stop, that we wish they would just cease. Father, show us that your grace is sufficient for our weakness. Show us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And also give us the power to go and sin no more. And to choose the true portion, the greater portion. Lord, I pray that you would take all of these weaknesses that we have and turn them into beauty. In your name we pray. Amen.